We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. We're back to blow some minds with Borges. We're talking about the lottery in Babylon. The lottery. Do you want to win? Do you want to play? Doesn't matter. You have to. (laughs) That should be the tagline. (laughs) You're just going to get notified and thrown in jail, potentially. (laughs) That's rough. So in terms of what happened in the plot, we we have, it's it's very brief, right? Like many Borges stories that, that somehow still managed to explode something in your head. But we have a relatively simple presentation of like, hey, let me tell you the story about this company, the lottery. And it turns out his dad claims, again, the claims to knowledge are going to be something we have to talk about, that it started with just some some merchants. Uh, it was basically they would pool together and started playing a game in broad daylight. And they'd put together copper coins, rectangles of bone or parchment, and then the drawing would occur and they'd win coins of minted silver. Right? Pr- pretty simple. Like, okay, yeah, a lottery. I get it. Like, right, you, you put in a little bit with the hope of getting you know, the big pot. Well, Borges adds in, next merchants added a negative result to squared number tickets where they had to pay if they lost, right? And, and people began to flock to it. Like, they, like the negative is what makes it take off, which is what's interesting. And mm-hmm. people were mocked if they didn't participate, right? Like how, how often do we see where people get bullied for not participating in something that's like the new hotness or, or what's what's taken off, right? And eventually the lottery institution had to basically press charges to stay profitable or throw people in jail if they didn't participate. And to thwart the company, you know, people began to, well, I'd rather go to jail than to pay my negative cost, right? Like, like that'll show you. <laughs> and the company just stopped publishing winners and losers and just, they just started arresting people. They became all powerful, omniscient, if you will. And there's some lines in here about lower caste neighborhoods that had priests gambling heavily. I have to talk about that one. Um, you know, the, like we said, the company took all power, but then once it's public and owned and free, well, now people are excited that it, it almost it's behind the randomness, right? Like there is no such thing as random. It's all calculated and controlled by the lottery. And the Babylonians surrendered their life, hope, fate to chance. And it goes on a long diatribe of of, of randomness. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with this this paragraph here that silent functioning like gods inspires all manner of conjectures one curiously suggests that the company ceased to exist hundreds of years ago and the sacred disorder of our lives is purely hereditary traditional and okay you got me this time crypto i know uh sometimes you bring up the religious element to to Borges and it catches me off guard I, okay yeah good we're, we're gonna have to talk about that with this one today <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, I didn't get to surprise you at all because it's so blatant and apparent. I felt like there, there, there's a few different major themes to discuss, but the two that are apparent uh, that you just named, obviously religion. I also think that you could almost look at this as like corporate greed as well. The big machine that is churning through the people to keep, you know, society afloat or functioning in some regard and not necessarily in a positive way. 
mm-hmm. and maybe even a total totalitarian version of that too, right? Okay, okay. So we have social pressures, religious pressures, and economic pressures. Of course, mm-hmm. Borges is going to give us a triple threat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I have enough brain cells left for this story tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to our friend Tiffany, and she pointed out a really interesting thing about Borges is how he, he while he's magical realism, and we can just say that, there's there's almost this element where reader gratitude is so high you're almost willing to believe this as nonfiction on some levels right there's parts of it that are real people that are the real world like we're talking about babylon right here right but it's clearly made up it's clearly not true and and he kind of blends the line blurs the line between reality and fantasy is it made up though it hits the nail on the head pretty perfect sometimes well yeah in terms of like human behavior and such for sure uh pretty sure pretty sure it's fake though just gonna put that one out there (laughs) (laughs) well let's start with that first one that you brought up uh the corporate greed tell me more about what you saw there so it felt like that the lotto controls people's lives indirectly and we think about the corporate greed of the big companies that control our lives indirectly you need to have power You need to have food, you need to have electricity and electronics to survive in today's world. And you think of those big companies that can control the prices of what you pay. They can control what media you can consume. They can control what time of day that you live your life because your job is beholden to them. So you have money to pay for your things. The lottery is sort of doing the same thing. The company is doing the same thing. And it's literally the company it just feels like it is such a, a not play on words of this capitalistic greed that drives us, that drives the companies, because we drive the companies too, and they drive up. It, it's this weird mix between the two of it's almost we're both necessary evils for each other. You know, there's a lot of examples in this story about how much of life is designed To your point, you said, you know, how much the company decides to put out, how much the company decides to share, how much they decide to charge. Well, there is the flip side, right? Like if we're taking on the pure, you know, free market hat here, we we would say it's almost impossible to decide what something is worth, right? Because theoretically, the end consumer is the one that's deciding what they would be willing to sacrifice or pay. You You could church it up. Marketing is a real thing in terms of hype, uh, in terms of supply and demand and driving that that fear or scare economy towards things. Don't get me wrong, but but you still have people making a choice to mm-hmm. say whether they'd be willing to invest in that. Right. And, th- and there's a little bit of discussion here. about How much of life is random? How much we're choosing versus how much of this is designed, put out there like the company made all these calls or is it we're making the, all the individual calls in between? You know what I mean? And the other thing, too, is you think about that the, the, the individuals get a choice. And while that's true, also think of the idea of this corporate greed of, of like, well, I'll stand up and I won't do it. That idea of like boycotting. And in a modern society, and if we're thinking that the lotto evolved into over, you know, 100 years, 1,000 years, whatever, into kind of what we are today-ish, give or take. Again, it is nonfiction, as we pointed out, that boycotts really – at some point don't work 
because a company only needs, you know, as a like a video game term, we call people that spend a lot of money on video games whales. You mm-hmm. don't need everybody to invest. You only need a few whales. And think of like Blizzard, the company. They they know that you can boycott all you want some of their stuff. They're still going to make money because there's going to be those few people that will choose to spend the money. And no matter what the marketing or what the design, they will still be profitable. They will still be in power. They will still be able to make and do what they want. I mean, it gave rise to the entire freemium model, right? Like, why not just make, you know, certain things that are scalable usually free, right? Like, you don't see a lot of products going that way because there's a cost of products. There's inventory, shipping, logistics. But when it comes to, like, video games, digital things, which are more and more common these days... Well, yeah, give it away for free because to your point, greed is the tool of ascension and learning where to harvest the most amount of that, that value from your consumers is what really makes some companies ascend to almost that godlike status of being able to do what they want on the backs of a few whales in your uh, scenario. And then we have on top of that, Sometimes you will eke out a few extra people that are on the border or people that are desperate because you have the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. Some of the people will see what the others have and they will be fine sacrificing whatever they have to. And like in this story, people are like, oh, they see that negative motivation, right? I got to participate because I might miss out of winning too, Mm -hmm. or I don't want to be seen as weak. Or I don't want to be seen lesser than, so I will make a self-sacrifice in order to participate in the game. And then the corporate company sees that, and they're able to, boom, capitalize again, and they don't even have to worry about the consequences. They can lock up whoever they want. Mm -hmm. Well, you you pay for things in two ways, either with your money, which doesn't cost a lot for the whale, so that's why they'll just throw it over, right? Or you pay with your life. Right. Time in terms of your time, right? You're paying mm-hmm. with your life, basically, and and they will absolutely get you addicted. It becomes a habit on that uh, to basically feed into that ascension, right? The greed is the tool of ascension when it comes to a lot of like that free market design, uh, and let's let's continue that because the ascension eventually leads this company to complete power. They become everything. I don't know if they say they become government, but they say they become all powerful, which in my mind is. You know, a monopoly on violence and essentially, right? Like, because they're deciding who goes to jail. They decide mm-hmm. who goes to the punitive, you know, elements of society in a sense. You got to remember, when was this, you know, published and written, sir? Oh, this is hard to ignore. It's clearly coming out around World War II. Right, right. And, and when it comes to the story of Germany, it wasn't like, it wasn't like the invasion of Poland while we as historians choose, you know, particular milestones and dates to begin periods and such. There was a long lead up into this. There was a long lead up of oppression. There was a long lead up of how the country treated individuals in the country in terms of who did or didn't have access to resources, in terms of, of how they viewed the Jewish community and started destroying their stores and refusing to patron uh, their businesses and such, right? This, there's clearly an element of a, a rise of the government and complete control and violence in this story as well. The way that when, you know, they start talking about that slave, remember, who stole a ticket and the, the, the punishment for stealing the ticket and the ticket that lost, that won the lottery, were the exact same. Right? 
Yeah, that's some heartbreaking irony there, right? Well, and the company is the one that enacts that power, that enacts the totalitarian uh, the, uh, forces, right? And rather than respond to criticism, right, they just they just put it on the was the, was it the the warehouse of masks? <laughs> like, like they just put a public statement like like out there. They don't address it because they're in complete control, like like a totalitarian government. Yeah, it's at the point of they can't fail, and they know that there are no consequences at this point because there's nothing that people can do. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this story is the life lesson of that the people can't surrender the power to the government because then they will live this, you know, subservient life and there's nothing they can ever do, which is heartbreaking. And I think that's one of the, I this has to be one of the most common criticisms of the story is by this whole idea of, of, okay, how does that tie in with the lottery from a totalitarian government by giving up choice, by saying the world is designed, you're refusing to participate in the concept of democracy. You're, you're get, by giving up choice, you're giving up democracy. True, but what if you never got a choice? I think back, I guess we could maybe relate it to kings and queens. Somebody said, I'm in charge because somebody else said so, or I'm in charge because I'm in charge. Divine yeah. rights, right? Divine rights. Uh, I, I was trying to leave the religion out of it because that I think is a whole other discussion we can have in a few minutes, but it kind of lends itself to this part <laughs> of the argument too because it's all blended, right? I mean, it, it, they're, we're, we're sectioning it off, but I believe that it's all kind of Borges' idea, in, in my opinion, that he's, he's blending all three of these elements together. But if we're looking at just this section of it still, uh, before we kind of put the full religious aspect into it also, is that someone said through divine right, I'm in charge, you're going to follow me or else, you know, off with their head. And it, it, it takes some, you know, effort to rise up against that. So it, it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's obviously what's going to happen. So I don't know, has this group really given up their democratic or, you know, powers of the group versus the one, the king or queen, you know, the emperor or whatever? Or is it because they said they're in charge, they never got the opportunity? And I feel like in this story, they really never got the opportunity. The company just took over. Well, there's that quote in here where they talked about how they surrendered their life, hope, and fate to chance because they, they were willing to forego that in some regards. And if you're giving me, I think I feel like you just gave me clearance to, to jump into the religious thing. Yes, sir. Because, well, <laughs> one of the mis biggest criticisms is I've never signed up for this. How can I be forced into this moral structure if if I've never agreed to be Christian? I've never agreed to be this type of a religion. And I know there's Gnosticism and all sorts of Buddhism elements to, to, to Borges' writing too. But that is something that's very clear in this story to me is what about all those people that never wanted to participate in that religion, yet they're being forced to enter into the lottery? I mean, and that's the thing of... Does this story say that there is a choice or there isn't a choice? Is there some type of control? The company, is the company divine? Is the company religion? Are they controlling us? Is there a greater power that made these choices? Why did they choose this for me? Because I didn't get a choice. Or if I did, why don't I remember it? Because that's not fair. Because maybe I would have made a different choice. We've talked about before, like, I really didn't know myself until I was like 43. And that was like five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know. It, it just feels like it's almost a cop out that 
it, it's not fair that I didn't get to decide anything in this because I came into the story in the middle of it, this the thing called life. Do you think that this lottery is the metaphor for can be like, like you said, Borges, I think, is playing with all three. Do you think some people view the lottery as a metaphor religion where you're so, so there's the promise of eternal life? That seems like a good thing. Mm -hmm. right? Like, why? Why wouldn't you want eternal life? Right. And then we throw in the bad thing. Right. Like if you don't live this moral life and they said the first lottery failed because it didn't have a moral component. Interesting. And then when we throw in the negative of eternal hell, torture, that sort of thing, losing money, being tortured by a government, whomever, that's when people got interested in it. Yeah. Right? When they had something to lose. Do you think that, you know, when we look at religions, not all of them have this, but many have an explanation of reward and an explanation of punishment. Look at the two largest religions in the world, and they both have a punishment to go along with the reward. And I think that here with, with Borges, it's this idea that you didn't get a choice. You, you don't get to choose where you're born. You don't get to choose anything at all. And that that can break you because you have to go with societal norms. And and that is I don't know, that that that's hard for an individual to grasp, you know, when you're going against what the society is thinking in the norm of, all right, we're all going to participate in this because there's good and bad, and you don't want the bad to happen because society, you know, we're, we're raised on no, we're raised on pain. If you get in trouble, you might get a spanking, or if you get in trouble, you're thrown in jail and given a negative. Uh, your your freedoms are taken away, your control is taken away, or, you know, you're thrown in, you know, if you get grounded, you lose money or freedom to go out with your friends, or you have to sit in your room by yourself. That's a horrible punishment of being isolated alone. It's just, oof, that, that, that is something that the company is controlling on these people. That silent functioning, like God's, inspires all manner of conjectures. One curiously suggests that the company ceased to exist hundreds of years ago, and the sacred disorder of our lives is purely hereditary, traditional. Okay, so again, we have design, right? It's like someone designed this world, or it's random, right? I just randomly got brought into this world by some random choice of genetics, or did God bring me into this world because he decided that this was my time to live, and this is the world that he designed around it, right? Um, divine hiddenness is a common question. If, if God is real, and we see in the Testament, the, the Old New Testaments, how he's constantly there, participating, involved in human life affairs, it seemed like he was more apparent and revealed himself more in the scriptures, right? Why has he been what appears to be silent for so many for so long? Why are we not hearing from him now with particular disasters? I know the, the, the response is you can't understand God's design, but the question is, what explains divine hiddenness? Why is there such a disparity in not hearing from him now? Maybe as I read this, I think of, okay, if I'm Borges and I'm writing this, am I thinking of why why isn't some divine being more present in our lives today? Why have we lost this connection with them? Why did they have a better connection thousands of years ago? And now it does seem like it is, you know, so far uh, it, it, had they abandoned us? Uh, did we upset them? Did we fail them? Uh, are, are they gone? I mean, you know, can a God die? Can a deity die? I don't know. 
uh, that, that's, you know, some of the bigger questions. And that, that's what's so great about these Borges stories is it just, it reveals one question after another that is so mind bending that it encapsulates what are the big questions of life. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is, there's even, I can't remember the term for it, but there's a, a specific worldview where the belief was that, that God became one with the world. And now it's not that he abandoned us, but it's, it's that he's no longer controlling. Like he's, he's here, he's everywhere. God is a, a circle with no circumference, right? But, but he's no longer controlling it and it's just kind of happening is, is another worldview. It is interesting how you can take the most philosophical deep questions and boil it down to some big concepts of, of life. And again, that's why Borges is a master. And I, and I don't have the answers either. And I don't think... I don't know if you ever would want the answers, right? These are the questions that are the driving forces of life. This is what it keeps us engaged in this conversation to give up our time, like we said, that, you know, is so important. We, we only have so many things that we can, you know, use in this life. And uh, I, if I'm going to use my time, I want to utilize it wisely asking these important questions. So thank you, Borges. Thank Another you. wonderful story. Playlist down below of other amazing Borges talks because, not because of our talks, but because of how good Borges is at writing. Uh, look forward to hearing from you. Let me know what other stories we should cover from him. My name's Benuna. Peace. Peace.